0: Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the Sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that never gets to use its sword, and frankly, it's pretty okay with that. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we're looking at Conan the Barbarian, issue number 11 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of November 1971, but it hit the stands in August. It sold for just 25 cents, and the title of the story is Rogues in the House. This issue was written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Buscema, and the letters were by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! Conan sits in chains in a Corinthian jail, betrayed by Jenna. Marillo, a Corinthian lord, comes to the jail with an offer to free the barbarian if he kills Nabonidus, the secret head of the city, as the lord is concerned with the red priest's pillaging ways. The plan hits a snag when Murillo's agent in the jail, Athicus, is imprisoned for reasons unknown. Murillo, thinking that Nabonidus was behind the imprisonment of Athicus, decides to take matters into his own hands and deal with the Red Priest himself. Meanwhile, Conan escapes on his own, seeking vengeance on Jenna. He finds and kills Igon on the way, then throws Jenna off the roof into the steaming garbage in the alley. He then turns his sights on Nabonidus. Conan sneaks onto the priest's grounds and into the sewer tunnels beneath the house where he encounters Murillo, who has been sneaking through the sewer tunnels after confronting Nabonidus and discovering the creature sitting on his throne is a brutish ape monster. Further investigation in the tunnels finds the unconscious body of Nabonidus. The priest comes to and explains that the creature Marillo encountered was Thak, an ape-man captured as a cub by Nabonidus to be his servant. I will name him George and I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him. Thak began to get ambitions of his own and attacked his master, knocking him unconscious and taking his place on the throne. Shame on you, George. Conan also discovers that Marillo is not as noble as he seems, as he had been selling state secrets. The three rogues go to confront Thak and observe him through two-way mirrors rampaging through the house. Eventually, the men are trapped in a locked room as Thak storms at them. Conan and Murillo manage to slay the giant beast. Nabonidus takes the opportunity to try to kill them with deadly fire traps, but is slain by a dagger thrown from Conan. Conan decides to leave Corinthia entirely, and travel to Argos. All right, so... I need you. I'm yours. This issue is based on the Robert E. Howard Conan story, Rogues in the House, and apart from just a few small changes, it's actually a very loyal adaptation. So I'm just going to do what I've been doing and go through the issue itself, and as I do so, I will point out the differences with the original Howard story, as long as I remember to do that when they pop up. My brain hurts! But One thing I failed to mention in the last episode when I talked about the price increase, you know, it went from 15 to 25 cents, the issue, that's what I'm talking about. Well, along with that bump in cost, we also got a bump in the number of pages. So, here, rather than trying to tell this tale in 18 to 22 pages, as they have been previously, Roy and Barry have 34 pages to adapt this story, and I think they did a pretty damn good job filling all 34 pages. I really do. Also, in case you're curious, when Dark Horse had the Conan license, they also adapted Rogues in the House in Conan Issues 41 through 44 from June to October in 2007. That story was written by Timothy Truman. The artist was Carrie Nord. The letterer was Richard Starkings, and the colorist was Richard Eisenhoff. It too was a very loyal adaptation, but frankly it's been about a month or two since I've read it, so uh you know, all three versions of this story are kind of merging in various areas in my brain. So My brain hurts too. I don't quite remember everything about the Dark Horse adaptation, but I feel like because it spanned 4 issues, they would have added much more detail. For example, I do recall that when Nabonidus tells Conan and Marillo how he got Thack as a cub. We see it as a flashback, and it takes up at least two pages. But here's the thing. While the Dark Horse version looks beautiful, it is Cary Nord after all, I think I rather enjoyed Roy and Barry's version best. How about you? Have you read both? What'd you think? Stephen or else at gmail.com. All right, let's get into the issue. We'll start with the cover. We have an image of Conan fighting a brown ape creature that's wearing a blue cape. It's bordered in red. It's like they took a red cover and just slapped this picture on top of it. And not a big fan of that kind of trade dress. But it's got a caption that says, All new, the longest, greatest Conan epic ever. And then below the image, it says, The Talons of Thak. I actually, despite the great expanse of red on this cover, I really quite enjoy it. I think it's a a fun little image with Conan fighting this ape creature even though i don't know if this is how it was originally colored or if they tried to touch it up with this reprint that i'm reading but thack is wearing a blue cape on the cover when it's red in the in the issue and he's holding a flaming brazier in his hand and it is also colored brown the same exact color as his fur which boo thumbs down bad coloring job okay. All right, so we get into the issue and we start out with Conan in a dungeon. Now, if you remember with the last issue, we talked about how they had to add those captions there at the end of the issue so that people knew that Conan was going to end up in a dungeon to be punished for murdering the priest of Anu. Well, here he is. He's in the dungeon. His was a tale of sorrow. We get a bit of a flashback to find out how he got into the dungeon. And we learn that it is because Jenna betrayed him. Now, in Robert E. Howard's version, it is a woman that betrays him and turns him into the city police to be arrested for murdering the priest. But she's never given a name. And as we talked about last week, there is this bit at the beginning of the robert e howard story that tells this part of the tale that it it starts out just like this with conan in this jail and then it we get a quick flashback just a, a couple of paragraphs that explain that he murdered the priest because a gunderman thief was caught and hanged and conan got away and he found out that the priest was working with the police and so he murdered the priest and then we learn that uh, a woman that he was seeing turned him in to the, the the police, and they came and got him. And in the in the Robert E. Howard version, Conan is just plain schnockered. He is drunk. He's been drinking wine, and he is stumble over, knock down, drunk, basically. And so, lad on your knife. When the police show up to get him, he, of course, being Conan, despite being drunk, he fights back and. He disembowels the captain. Now, the captain's not named in the Robert E. Howard story. We know it's Captain Aaron here in this issue. But just like here in the issue, he manages to escape, but he runs headlong into a door jam and knocks himself out. In the issue, however, again, we have Jenna who betrays him. This was something that Roy set up in the previous issue to hook Jenna up basically with Igon and give her a reason to want to betray Conan. It's not like she hasn't done it before. She stole all that gold from him back in that issue with the giant bat. Live, but they couldn't really show Conan being drunk. Roy thought that the Comics Code Authority wouldn't like the hero of the story being drunk. And he also feels that if Stan Lee had been paying attention and saw that they were writing a story about Conan being drunk, that he wouldn't have liked that either. He would have made them change it. So instead, while they show him drinking some wine, he's not drunk, but we learn that Jenna drugged the wine so that he is a bit out of it when the police come. But again, when they come, he works through his drug-like state and he fights them off for a while and he tries to run out of the room and he hits his head on a door jam and knocks himself out. And while we don't see it happen, we learn that he does kill Aaron during the fight because we get a panel where one of the guardsmen is, is covering Captain Aaron with a sheet. And then as Conan is being dragged away, he sees that Igon is also part of this plot to get Conan captured. And in fact, as he's being dragged away, Igon says, look, Jenna, he sees me knows it's Igon who's taken his place in your affections. Fear not, barbarian. We'll spend the reward money wisely. He's just itching to have a dagger shoved in his belly, isn't he? Isn't he? A little foreshadowing there. Anyway, we go back to the jail in the present time, and Marillo has come to visit Conan, and he tells Conan, of course, that he's going to free him if Conan will go and kill Nabonidus. He shows Conan a little gift he got from Nabonidus, which is the severed ear of one of Marillo's servants whom he had sent to spy on Nabonidus. This was something that Roy states in his wonderful book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1. He says in that book that he was quite surprised that they got away with showing a severed ear. They didn't, he didn't think that they'd get that past the Comics Code Authority. But they managed to do just that. So the plan here is that Conan, he's chained to the wall in his jail cell. And Murillo has this guy that works for him that is one of the jailers, Athicus. And he has Athicus undo the chains at Conan's wrists. So while he is in the jail cell, he's no longer chained to the wall. He has Athicus bring Conan some food. And then he says, give me an hour. And then you'll be able to just walk out of the jail. Athicus will leave the door open. Just, just walk out, go kill Nabonidus, and then go straight to a tavern called the Rat's Den where gold and a fast horse will await you. Conan agrees, and it's made clear here that Sumerians do not break their pledges. If they say they're going to do something, they will do it, which is exactly why Marillo came to talk to him. So Marillo goes home, and he's there for a while when one of his servants comes in to tell him that Athicus has been arrested, and the servant is named Sivraj. This is something that was not included in the Robert E. Howard story. There is a servant that tells Marillo about his agent at the jail, but he's not given a name. Roy gives him a name, Sivraj, S-I-V-R-A-J, which is Jarvis spelled backwards, and we all know that Jarvis is Tony Stark, Iron Man's loyal butler. What was I thinking? You're usually so discreet. So Marillo thinks that Nabonidus is behind Athicus being arrested and realizes that with Athicus in jail, Conan is not going to be able to escape. And so he realizes that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So he grabs a sword and jumps on his horse. And he rides on over to the house of Nabonidus. Prepare to die. It is midnight, according to the captions, and Murillo starts to sneak in, scaling the wall and creeping about in the garden. Conan, we then see, manages to escape. He's sitting in his cell, eating his food, when one of the other jailers sees that he's eating food, opens up his cell, comes in to find out what's going on and then realizes that Conan's not chained to the wall, which, big mistake, jailer man, because Conan smacks him across the face with a frickin' turkey leg or something, or a big beef bone or whatever he's chewing on, and then he escapes. However, he doesn't go immediately to the house of Nabonidus to, to do what he told Marillo he would do. He needs to get revenge on Jenna first. And so he goes to where Jenna is living In the maze, and there's a moment where they mention as he's walking through the maze, it says, The maze, a labyrinth of back alleys and devious ways, of furtive sounds and nauseous stenches. For sewers are unknown in the maze, where mud and filth mingle in reeking puddles. Keep that in mind, because that's going to mean something here in just a bit. So before Conan goes up the steps to Jenna's room, which is up on the second floor in this building, he sees Igon come out of the room and start coming down the steps, and so Conan hides, and as Igon gets down to the bottom of the steps, Conan makes his presence known and immediately punches Igon right in the gut. As Igon is gasping for breath, he takes Igon's knife belt, which I'm assuming because he makes such a big deal out of it first give me that knife belt he tells Igon and and I I have to assume that's the knife belt that Conan stole from Nabonidus in the previous issue when he and Bergen broke into the house of Nabonidus and the only thing that Conan took was the belt and frankly after reading this issue I think Bergen and Conan had a pretty lucky night that night despite Bergen being captured and then hanged it could have been a lot worse for him had a certain something caught them in that house, but Conan takes the knife prepare to die, obviously Igon draws his sword, telling Conan he's a fool for allowing him to regain his breath, and then Igon tries to chop off Conan's arm or his head he's, he chops at him, and Conan easily dodges out of the way and Igon, who must be somebody who's used to getting what he wants, says you know screams out to Conan. That, you know, why don't you stand still? Which always cracks me up when people say that. Like, Conan's just supposed to stand still. Just supposed to let Igon chop him up with this sword. But instead, he keeps dodging until eventually he rams the knife into Igon's gut. We don't necessarily see it. We see it from behind. And we see basically the fabric on Igon's vest. Which, this is the first time he's worn a vest. A shirt of any kind. And I'm assuming they did it specifically so that when Conan stabs him and the knife pierces through his gut and out his back, we don't see that. That's why they put the the little vest on him. So we can, we can see there's a tent now on the back of his vest where the knife is about to poke through. But yeah, Igon is dead. Then Conan kicks in the door of Jenna's room, and it's pretty awesome because instead of just kicking the door free and having it swing open and bang against the wall or kicking it off its hinges. So it falls to the ground. He kicks it and the door just freaking shatters into hundreds and hundreds of pieces of wood scattered about the floor. Jenna is in bed and she's naked. Oh, she's naked. And I should mention that when we saw her in the flashback earlier, in this issue, she's naked there as well. Naked. Naked. There are two panels, both here and in the flashback, where she's shown from the back. She's got a blanket around her waist, but it's obvious that if the camera were to swing around and show her front, that you'd see her boobies. And this was another thing that Roy wasn't sure if they'd be able to get away with when it comes to the comics code authority. Because while, you know, looking at it now, all right, it's the bare back of a woman. Sitting up in bed, it's not a big deal. But apparently back then in 1971, it was rather racy. It had a lot of fellas, young boys, reading this book going, ooh la la, look at her bare back, Jim. Look at that. Holy smokes. So yeah, doing some racy things with Conan and Jenna back in 1971. So when Conan comes bursting through the door, he's holding his knife up in front of him. She screams at him wants to know where Igon is and she realizes that Conan has killed him. And then she just immediately starts to lie because she thinks Conan's there to kill her. But she tells him that Conan shouldn't have killed Igon because Igon was just leaving to go rescue Conan from jail. Conan tells her that the truth would stick in her throat if she ever tried to tell it. And because then after she says that she had sent Igon to go rescue him, and he tells her that she's lying she says i knew you'd escape because you told me that you could remember and in the flashback one of the things that happens between jenna and conan before the police show up she mentions that everybody's out looking for him for killing the the priest and asks him that if he got caught does you know what would happen do does he think he'd be able to escape and He's like, yeah, I'd I'd escape. I'm freaking Conan, baby. Hail to the king, baby. And so here she says, I knew you'd escape. You told me you could. And that's when he's like, then why would you send Igon to rescue me if you knew I was going to escape? That doesn't make any sense. You lying bitch is basically what he's telling her. And so he just picks her up. The blanket, conveniently enough, stays wrapped around her. He steps out onto the window ledge. Steps across the alley to the rooftop of the building next to them and then throws Jenna right off the roof where she falls into what the description I read, the synopsis from marvelfandom.com says that she was thrown into the steaming garbage in the alley, which which is technically true. But in the Robert E. Howard version, it says that she's thrown into a cesspit, which is a mixture of garbage and sewage. So as you're looking at this book, as you're looking at this image, and you see her land in the cesspit, and you see her roll around, and she's up to her neck in it, and she's yelling at Conan, she is covered in garbage and piss and shit. That's pretty disgusting. And apparently this is just most Conan fans' favorite scene. Conan throwing a woman into piss and shit. Apparently, people just love that about him. And I mean, I guess she deserved it, but there are other reasons to like Conan. I'm afraid and I'm shy. So then we get to part two of the book. This is split into two parts. And part two is called The Talons of Thak. And Conan is breaking into the house of Nabonidus. He scales the wall. He finds a dog, a guard dog, dead in the garden surrounding the house. Actually, now that I'm looking at it again, the dog isn't dead. It's dying. And Conan has to put it out of its misery, which that's just some hardcore stuff they're showing in this book. We've seen a severed ear. We've seen Conan stab somebody through the belly so deeply that the knife pierces his back, comes out the other side. And then we see Conan have to kill a dog because it had its neck broken and it's suffering. Well, Conan finds the entrance to some tunnels or some some sewers, and he goes in he the tunnel. and a, a metal grate with spikes on the bottom comes slamming down behind him, almost piercing his back, but he can't lift it back up. So he's trapped in the sewer. And so he goes in further and deeper, and that's when he runs into Murillo, who tells him that he assumed that Conan wasn't going to be able to escape. Once Athicus was arrested, he figured Conan would remain in jail, so he came to kill Nabonidus himself. However, when he got into the house, he found that one of the red priest's servants, Joka, finds a dude just dead on the floor, his neck broken. Then he finds what he thinks is Nabonidus sitting on the throne because he's approaching from behind. And all he can see is somebody sitting there wearing... The red priest's robes. And he comes up behind him and he's getting ready to stick him with his sword when Nabonidus turns around to reveal that it's a big hairy ape-beast man ape-beast thing. And Morello tells Conan all about this, and he tells Conan that Nabonidus must be some sort of were beast, like a like a were ape. And Conan just takes him at his word. He says, you know, there everybody knows that there are men who can take the form of wolves at will, and then the two decide, let's just get the hell out of here. Everybody out! But as they're trying to find a way to get out of the sewers, they find Nabonidus unconscious on the floor in one of the tunnels. And that's when they learn that this ape creature is named Thak, that it's not quite an ape, and yet not quite a man. It's somewhere in between. It's more ape than man, but is rather smart for a monster or an ape beast or whatever the frick it is. It's from a race of creatures that live in the mountains and Nabonidus, uh, a long time back, found Thack when he was a cub, took him home, raised him as a servant, thinking that he was raising uh, a loyal bit of muscle, the one servant that he'd be able to trust. And... We also learn here that in, in the comic issue that Marillo wanted Nabonidus dead because Nabonidus knew that Marillo was selling secrets to another nation or another city state or whatnot. And so basically Marillo was a traitor and he was going to he was going to tell the king. I don't remember that being a thing in the Robert E. Howard book. I know that he did get an ear from, you know, a severed ear that belonged to his servant that Nabonidus sent him, that basically was telling Marillo that he had until morning to live. And it was actually, we learned, that Nabonidus was telling him, this is your one get-out-of-jail-free card. You need to leave town because tomorrow I'm going to whisper a little something in the king's ear, and then he's probably going to send people around to kill you. Marillo just assumed that meant that Nabonidus was coming to kill him, so he decided to take matters into his own hands. Anyway, the three of them decide to band together to to try to get out of the sewers. Nabonidus knows how to get them out. And he will help them if they will protect him while they do so, because they have to go up into the house to do it. And they come to a chamber with a big mirror on the wall. And he's got a bunch of brass tubes pointing at the mirror. And inside the tubes are other mirrors. And basically, he has a collection of mirrors all over the house that reflect into these tubes and he can see what's going on anywhere in the house in this one big mirror in this room. So it's a security system. It's just like a, a bank of monitors and a bunch of cameras all over the house. And through the mirror, they see Thak. Thack is sitting there waiting at this door. And it's a door that's at the top of the stairs from where Conan and Nabonidus and Marillo are. And Thak knows that if Nabonidus wants to escape, he has to come up through that door. It's the only way out of the, the sewers and the tunnels and the dungeons underneath the house. And so he's just sitting there waiting patiently, which I don't know that that makes a lot of sense to me. This, the same thing happened in, in the Robert E. Howard story. I don't understand why Thack, who decides he wants to become the master of the house, knocks Nabonidus out and dumps him in the dungeon and then is waiting for him to come up through the door so he can kill him. Why didn't he just kill him the first time around? I, I don't know. I don't understand that part of it. If, 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 if you get the point there, let me know, Stephen or else at gmail.com. But as he's waiting, he notices over there in a corner, there's a leopard, a black panther that has is chained to the wall. It's one of Nabonidus's pets and thack wanting to be the master of the house goes over to the, the freaking Panther and starts petting it as if he is Nabonidus and the Panther then bites Thak and Thak and the Panther fight for a little bit, but eventually Thak kills the Panther. And we get a moment where he lifts up the Panther's paw and gives it a little wiggle to see if the Panther is dead, which is supposed to mirror the scene in King Kong where Kong did that with one of the dinosaurs that he killed. Now, this scene does not appear in the Robert E. Howard story. There is a bit in the Robert E. Howard story that happens at this point that gives us an opportunity to see just exactly how intelligent Thack is. And what happens in the Howard version is that at this moment, when they come to the mirror and they see Thack waiting for them at the door behind him, creep in a group of men who are revolutionaries, basically. They've come to the house to kill the red priest, who everybody knows is the true ruler of this city, and they want revolution. They think that Nabonidus is a tyrant, which he is, and they've come to kill him. And Thack notices them, but instead of attacking them, he pulls a little rope. There's all these traps all throughout the house that can be sprung by pulling various ropes. And he pulls a rope, it causes this trap to be sprung, they're trapped in a room, and they are killed by having a poisonous gas seep into the room, which Nabonidus just finds super interesting that Thack would remember and know how to do that. He's seen Nabonidus do it a number of times, but the fact that he is this ape beast that knows how to do it and remembers how to do it, that's what we see in the Howard story. Roy and Barry decided not to include that here because they felt that it was too much of a coincidence that the very same night that Conan and Murillo break into the Red Priest's house to kill him, that another group of men happened to pick that exact same night to break in to kill him. So instead, they put this little scene in with the, the, the panther to show basically how tough and strong and how vicious Thack is. Well, the incident with the Panther makes Thak realize that he's he's not going to be the master of the house. So he starts storming through the house and wrecking stuff. And that gives Conan and Nabonidus and Marillo the chance, the time to escape from this room and get up into the house so they can get out. And in the Howard story, when Thak pulls the rope and kills the men who are coming to kill the Red Priest, once they're dead, he vents the room of the gas and then he goes in to take the dead bodies and dispose of them just like Nabonidus would do and it's it's that opportunity that's what they use in the stories for the 3 of them to to escape the dungeons and try to get out and i think in the story they're actually trying to get through a room get to a room in the house that has weapons that they can use to destroy Thak. but i feel like i don't think that's the case here in the issue i think they're just trying to get out of the house but they're discovered by Thak. They come up with a quick little plan to have Murillo step out into the corridor so Thak can see him and chase him down the corridor. They'll run by Conan, who is hiding behind a curtain, who then jumps out, jumps on the back of this ape beast and just starts stabbing it continuously. In the Howard story, he's got a very long-bladed knife, and in the in, in the comic, he's got a sword. But he's on the ape's back, his legs wrapped around its waist and as he's just plunging his sword in and out of its back and its side, its neck, trying to find something vital, and it's not working. The ape is not going down. And if you've ever seen the Frazetta cover to one of the Lancer slash ace paperback collections, it shows Conan on the back of an ape beast that's wearing a red cape. That's that's what this is from. That's a very classic image. You'll you'll see it a lot online. And it's actually the cover to the one Conan paperback I used to own or used to be in the house. It was my dad's or my brother's, but it's the one that just sat around the house that I never read because I'm an idiot. Why am I so stupid? But eventually, Fak manages to get its arms back behind it and grasp Conan and start squeezing the life out of Conan. And Nabonidus tells Marillo that he has to do something or Conan's going to die. And Murillo rushes up, and I guess he bangs the hilt of his dagger on Thak's head, which doesn't really hurt Thax too much, but it distracts him enough that he releases or relaxes his grasp on Conan, and that allows Conan to whip around and stab him through the heart and kill him. In the Howard story, he hits Thak with a chair. Not sure why they made that change. But with Thak dead, Conan makes this pronouncement. I have slain a man tonight, not a beast. I will count him among the chiefs whose souls I have sent to the dark, and my women will sing of him. So Conan doesn't feel great about killing Thak. But they go into this room so that they can drink some wine. Conan is bloody and bruised. They don't really show that here, but he is. He's, He's bloody and bruised. Uh, with his fight, he's got a bunch of puncture marks all over him from Fax talons. And Nabonidus goes off to get some bandages so that Marillo can dress his wounds. But of course, as Nabonidus steps out of the room, he laughs at them, calls them fools. And he's about to throw a lever, which in the comic sets the room on fire. And he's able to increase it so that it burns you know, basically, there's jets of fire coming up from the floor. There's probably little gas pipes. And he can increase it so that it burns both Conan and Murillo to death. But before he can do so, Conan takes his dagger, throws it at Nabonidus, and it kills him. You shall not have died in vain. Well, here's the thing I don't understand this change because I said in the last episode that Rogues in the House is one of my favorite Conan stories, and it is. But it's all because of this scene. In the Howard version, Nabonidus is leaving the room. He stops to grasp one of the ropes that hang from the ceiling everywhere in the house. And he tells them that he's going to kill them, that every room in the house has traps in it. And all he's got to do is pull the rope and they're going to die. And Conan, at the table, drinking his wine, he just simply picks up a chair or a stool. I think it's a stool. Just picks up a stool and throws it at Nabonidus and immediately Nabonidus his main his reaction is his gut his his reaction is to throw his hands up in in front of his face so he lets go of the rope and the the stool cracks him in the skull cracks his skull open and he bleeds out and dies on the ground and when i read this story for the first time the howard version when i got to that part the way i read it i don't think this was the way it was meant to be cuz when i've listened to the story within the last couple of weeks this is not how i felt listening to that scene but when i read it i felt like conan was just sitting there at the table bloody, bruised, tired, he's ready to just freaking lay down and take a nap and he's he's freaking drinking his wine, Navanitus goes to grab the the freaking rope and he's yelling at him and calling him fools and conan in a very nonchalant way still holding his cup of wine just leans down, grabs a stool, and throws it at Nabonidus and kills him. And it was just this very, like I said, nonchalant, just kind of, ah, he's dead now. And for some reason, I found that very funny, and I thought it was a great, great scene. You know, because here's a guy who, he's not really a wizard. They say in the issue that he's a man of science, but because he knows a lot about science, and because he's a super genius, and he's built a lot of things, people consider what he can do to be magic, but they could have ended this story with another big epic fight. But I guess Howard felt, well, we had our epic fight between Conan and Thak. And so let's just take Nabonidus out really quick and in such a, a stupid way for somebody such as Nabonidus to die. I just loved it. It was great. I loved it. It was my my favorite bit from the story, and it made Rogues in the House become one of my favorite Conan stories. And here, they change it and they have Conan throw a dagger at him. And that, that really disappointed me. But the, the comic issue ends with Conan mentioning to Murillo. He's like, well, you know, you said you got this. Well, he may have said it earlier that there's a horse and gold waiting for Conan at the rat's nest. And so he tells Murillo that he's, he's, he's still bound for Argos. So that's where he's been heading this whole time in the last number of issues. He's, he's heading for Argos. He wants to be out at sea. And he's still going to head that way. But as he says, there's many a road he wants to travel before I walk the path which Nabonidus walked this night. And that's how the issue ends. I really enjoyed this issue. So far, of the 11 Conan issues published by Marvel Comics, so far, this is my absolute favorite. Part of that, of course, is because it's based on one of my favorite Conan stories. But I think Roy and Barry did a really good job of adapting it Into 34 pages, they made a few slight changes, which never really bothers me too much. I mean, if you're going to adapt a story from one format to another, you're going to change stuff. And sometimes you change stuff so that it works in the format in which you're telling the story. Because some stuff that you do in a prose story is not going to work when you try to do the exact same thing in a comic or on a TV show. Or in a movie, and so you have to make changes when you adapt stories into a new medium, and so I thought they did a really good job there, but they also made changes, I feel, just simply because you know they wanted to make their mark on this story as well and i'm I'm fine, I'm fine with all the with with the few changes that they made. I really like how they kind of tied everything together, going back a few issues with you know Bergen being the reason that Conan murdered the priest, which had him in the jail at the beginning of the story. I like that it was Jenna that betrayed him, and she's been a part of the book for a number of issues, and I like that Igon got his in the end, because he was a real frickin' prick as far as I was concerned, and uh, good to see him go the way of bleeding out from his belly. That was that was a little harsh, wasn't it? Brother, that's a darkness that... Swallows you whole. But yeah, really enjoyed it. The art, still pretty much at the same level that it has been. Uh, again, you have Barry Windsor Smith being inked by Sal Buscema, so it's going to look a certain way. And so it's it's maintained that look for the last number of issues, and I have no problem with it whatsoever. The fight between Conan and Fact, I thought, was really well done. I really enjoyed that. It was, all in all, was just a really well done issue, and it's my favorite one. So far. What about y'all? What'd you think? Did you enjoy this one? Send me an email, stephenorels at gmail.com. And hey, speaking of emails, I guess it's time to do a little listener feedback. All right, so I got one email this week. It comes from Cordell Brown. It's in response to the previous episode in which we talked about Conan the Barbarian, issue number 10. And actually, it's about my response to the email I got last week and my talk about Robert E. Howard being a great big old racist. So here, let me just tell you what Cordell has to say. So I just wanted to send a big old thank you for talking about how Howard was a super racist POS. And back to me real quick, if you're not sure, folks, what a POS is, it's a piece of shit. Back to the email. It really isn't brought up a lot. I didn't really learn about that until I was well into my 20s. I'm 37. As a Black Conan fan who's been a fan of this character and surrounding cast of characters for my entire life, it was a real hard pill to swallow and to come to terms with because reading the books as a kid, you do kind of side-eye it a bit as an adult. You really start to question it, but you are absolutely right when it comes to liking the franchise. There's been so many hands in the Conan pot that it's easily okay to look past the BS. For the most part, because there are some art choices in the Dark Horse Queen of the Black Coast issues, when Conan becomes allies with the crew of Belit's crew, they are darker skinned when they are the villains, and then they become much lighter when everyone are buddies especially with characters like Conan's friend Juma being a returning protagonist and the character in the old Conan animated series, Zula. Conan has definitely become more than slash better than his creator. I watched the Conan movies with my dad, and as a dad, I've introduced the character to my kids. It's ingrained into who I am. Hell, when I started working out, it was to shape myself like the character because of the Frank Frazetta artwork. Sorry for the long message, Long story short, I'm a big fan of the show. Job well done. So I had already responded to Cordell because I always like to ask if folks mind if I read their stuff out on the show, especially when there is personal type stuff in the email. And of course, of course Cordell said yes, because I'm, I'm reading and I'm not that kind of an asshole. But when I did respond, I told him that this freaking email just made my day, made my week, it made my month. And I'm going to tell you again, Cordell, thank you so much for this email. It's, you know, I'll tell you what, when I started calling that out in whatever issue that was with the winged guy that that stole Jenna and I started talking about Robert E. Howard and his racism, I assumed, honestly, maybe, maybe this is bad on me for thinking less of Conan fans, but I assumed I would get a lot of emails and whatnot telling me that I was wrong and that they're never, I'm never listening to your show again because you're talking about my boy, Robert E. Howard, and I'm going to cancel you, you freaking liberal, and trying to move your liberal agenda across this whole country, of ours, and blah, bloopity bloop, bloop, bloop. And I haven't got one of those. I'm, I'm really quite happy about that. It's, I always just assume the worst in people nowadays, especially white folks. And the fact that I'm one of them, I don't know. I don't know what I was trying to say there. <laughs> I kind of went a little, little sideways with that. Anyway, I really appreciate the email. I haven't read the Dark Horse version of Queen of the Black Coast yet, so that I find that a bit surprising with the the skin tone of Belit's crew. I mean, surprising and yet not surprising at the same time, but it makes me want to seek that out. I have a number of epic collections that Marvel put out that have a lot of the dark horse stuff in it. And I don't know if I have that in there yet or not, because the Marvel version, this doesn't happen until he he doesn't do the queen of the black coast until like issue 100. So it's something that, that is out there on the horizon that I know I'm going to get to eventually. Uh, but yeah, I may have to go look at that dark horse version. In fact, I've thought about putting a, a bonus episode together every now and again, you know, something I can give to my patrons, and then maybe a month later released everybody else on the main feed. But, you know, I'm thinking about stories that they will adapt in the Marvel Comics, the the Robert E. Howard stories, but it's not going to be for, you know, a hundred issues or more. And I may not do this podcast that long. And I, so I I may want to talk about those before it's too late. You know, I want to get all of the Robert E. Howard stories and any adaptations that have been done. I want to get those talked about before you know, I die or or something causes me to stop doing the podcast. So another thing that your email did there for me, Cordell, is to really get to start to get to start. God, I can't talk. It's really got me started on thinking about how I need to start doing that. Did that make any sense? That doesn't make sense. I need some coffee. All right, folks, that's all I got. Thank you again, Cordell, for the email. That's all I got for this week, folks. I hope you had fun because I surely always have fun reading the issues, and then talking about them. Next week, unless there is a delay, we're going to be looking at the second of the new Titan Conan comics, which it's supposed to release on August 30th. That's what they're saying this week because it was actually supposed to release this week. But because issue number one was pushed back a week, issue number two, and I think every subsequent issue at this point has been pushed back a week from their original date. So instead of releasing... Today on the 23rd cuz that's when I'm recording this, it's going to release next Wednesday on August 30th. So that so we're going to talk about it on Friday's episode providing I have a chance to record it between now and then. Otherwise, we're going to get back to Marvel with issue number 12 from September of 1971. I'm going to try and record that episode this week to be ready for next week in case I'm not able to find a chance or find the time between Wednesday and Friday to read the new titan comic and record an episode about it so what are you gonna get next week i don't know until then folks keep your swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones bye Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at or else.com Questions and comments can be directed to Stephen or else at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or else and join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. So if he's got to do something, so if he's got, and so he realizes that if you want, done, Jesus Christ. Enough talk.